I thought if I, who spent all this time and was so sympathetic to it, could not see what happened to me as me too, that says a lot about how we process these things for ourselves. From Cap Radio, this is a music of their own, an interview podcast about women in music. We hear stories of survival and perseverance, and we explore why being a woman in music is so different from being a man. We are bringing you a special bonus episode. March is Women's History Month, and one of the most pressing issues right now for women is Me Too. If I say Me Too to you, you might think Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby, but classical music has its own history with Me Too, and an important part of that written history is Anne Majette. Anne was the first woman to write classical music criticism on the regular for the New York Times, and she served as chief classical music critic of the Washington Post for more than a decade. In this capacity, Anne was a major national mouthpiece for women in classical music. This interview centers on a Me Too piece that Anne co-authored for the Washington Post in 2018. It exposed abuse by some major leaders in this world and cost a few their jobs. I start with Anne by going behind the scenes to understand the very complex process of how Me Too gets written. You mentioned that there were upwards of 75 people who initially came to you with reports of some form of abuse. And in the article itself, you're able to report on, let's just say, a small fraction of that, maybe at best one in 10. So I am curious to know how you feel about this gap between the reporting that is happening behind the scenes and the actual published reporting that you were able to do? That's a good question and a complicated question because those statistics have confused or, or angered or you know, understandably upset people. And um, let me break them down for a minute before answering. Obviously, there's a huge discrepancy between all the stories one knows are flattening around out there and even all the stories I heard and what I was able to get in print. But we spoke to, I don't remember the exact numbers now, I talked to more than 50 people with direct accounts of things that had happened to them. And I talked to another 20-some people who had accounts of things that had happened to somebody they knew, some like, you know, credible firsthand accounts. Now, I will also say that the vast majority of people I spoke to were like, you cannot use my name under any circumstance. You know? mm. And if you were to get 10 other people talking about this person, I might come forward. So that rules out the majority of those stories right away at the explicit wish of the victim. You don't circumvent that. You don't go around that, you know. And some of them were about the same person. You know? So it's not like we had 75 unique people running around there. I only talked to maybe a two people who I thought were sort of inflating what had happened out of a sense of injustice or a frustrated romantic, whatever, you know, like a, mm -hmm. a relationship gone wrong. Mm -hmm. You had to really sift through, like as a journalist, what is worth pursuing, what is not worth pursuing. Painfully also, as a journalist, you have to focus on what is my editor going to care about? And unfortunately, the vast majority of cases, and I'm sure this is still true, are happening in say, Midwestern universities in small towns whose names not everybody is familiar with by people you've never heard of. And they can act with pretty much impunity because 
the Washington Post, the New York Times, any big paper is not going to spend six months of a big reporter's time and energy to track down the heinous activities of John Doe in Podunk somewhere. So we had to pick, first of all, people who were willing to talk on the record. And that was sort of a fluctuating band. People were pulling out and changing their minds and deciding to jump in right up until publication. Um, You had to talk about people who were recognized enough to make the editors want to write about it um, and that you could corroborate. There were a couple of stories that came out right at the very end because also the lawyers went through this with a fine tooth comb. Mm -hmm. I think we were, we were tested for this story much more rigorously than even some other stories in the same paper because it was such an arcane area in the experience of most of the people dealing with it. And they really wanted to make sure they got it right. Mm. Um, And one of the things I am proud about with that story is that Nobody afterwards came and said, how could you accuse poor, innocent so-and-so? With our story, there was no pushback, um, partly because all the people we discussed were so well-known that it was just a sense of it's about time. You know, I'm sorry to say that it did not occur to me that the incendiary nature of a story would be part of what enables it to get printed because you have to have something that is eye-catching enough (laughs) that both... That the editor okays it so that the readers will be interested. It's not just incendiary, though. If you think about it, like you've got a reporter and the reporter's making a big salary and it's going to take six months to get this story in print. You know, is it worth it for your reporter to go off to Iowa and cover, you know, spend a long time Mm. uncovering something that maybe nobody's going to read? Like what constitutes news? And unfortunately, the newsworthiness of this. If we were to investigate every single story that came across our radar, you could have a whole team of people doing nothing but that. That Me Too story took eight months from start to finish to get into print. One of the things I see happening during Me Too is this attempt on the part of victims to understand how our personal experiences line up with the experiences of others. When we talk to other victims, we can sometimes see ourselves reflected in their stories. And this can be helpful because it tells us we're not alone. But it can also be horrifying because the stories are also similar and they multiply like a hall of mirrors. You can start to get really lost and it's like, well, where does this end? Does my story matter? I'm going to drop us back into the discussion at a moment where Anne and I are talking about why sometimes it can take victims years to report an incident. If you're someone who might be triggered by stories of sexual assault, please know that there is a brief description of assault in what follows. You have all of these kind of masking reflexes or behaviors that you do in order not to fully come to terms with what it is that happened to you. And it can take years to process that. Um, I have seen women who talked to me after 20 years and were really realizing as they talked to me what had happened. Huh. You know, you just kind of push it down and move forward. Uh-huh. You can even be working with this stuff on a regular basis and be constantly exposed to it and not realize what might have happened to yourself. The, the denial mechanism is very strong. Have you yourself, and have you ever experienced sexual assault? <laughs> That's a complicated question, too. Mm. Um, I've experienced like direct sexual assault, like men, you know, 
sticking their hands inside me on this subway platform in Paris, for example, like really that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, That happened to me twice in France um, and all kinds of instances of being followed by men masturbating and that sort of thing. Um, Like I've had three of those where it was actually following in in dark streets and whatever. Um, Although the two, the two guys in France, sticking their hands up inside me was were worse. Um, so I've had wow. that kind of thing. But in terms of relationship scenarios, yeah, I've also had that. I mean, the first incarnation of Me Too, I think even before Weinstein, when, when Trump said the thing about grabbing the pussy and women just began posting on social media about all yeah. the times they'd been assaulted like that, like somebody just grabbing you. Um, we were all sort of reevaluating our experience as women. And it seemed to me that the majority of women had something like that happen a groping or, a, you know, grabbing on the subway. I mean, I remember somebody grabbing me on the subway when I was a teenager and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Get away. I didn't even think about it. It didn't even occur yeah. to me as an assault. It was just like a nuisance, you know? Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, the thing about me too, that distinguishes it from mere sexual assault, which is bad enough, but you know, they're both bad in horribly different ways. But Me Too is a power relationship. The difference between some guy flirting with you and your boss flirting with you is a power relationship. Me Too puts you in this position of um, a power imbalance. I mean, the whole question of whether Monica Lewinsky was Me Too or not, and the way we've come to understand the Monica Lewinsky story over Hmm. time, and seen now that, yes, it was a Me Too story about a young woman in thrall to an older man. And if you want proof of it, Me Too, whose life was ruined by it? It sure as hell wasn't the older man's life, right? Yeah. and But for a long time, feminists alleged that that was not a Me Too situation because they wanted to emphasize her agency and autonomy in that to assert her power as a woman. And it was only really in like 2018 that Monica Lewinsky herself and other women began reevaluating it and saying, oh yes, I see now that that was a power imbalance. And yes, I have been involved in that kind of situation and really amusingly, and I don't think I've said this to really anybody, but um, when I, it was right before I quit the post, it was really the last piece I was writing for the post and I was incredibly blocked on it. And it was only then after months of research about Me Too, about you know all the stuff I'd written about it at that point, it was 2019, so my article had come out, I'd done follow-up articles, that I realized that something that had happened to me was in fact a Me Too relationship. Huh. I knew I was extra sympathetic to the situation because I sort of understood from my history, but I didn't ever really fully realize that I had also been in that situation. And um, I thought if I, who spent all this time and was so sympathetic to it, could not see what happened to me as me too, that says a lot about, you know, how we process these things for ourselves as well. How do we process these things for ourselves? I find this last point Anne makes so telling. It's only when she's working on a Me Too story for somebody else that she suddenly realizes she had her own Me Too story. It's this Hall of Mirrors effect. We're working so hard just to understand what's happening in our own reflection, and then suddenly it's multiplied everywhere you look and you can just get more confused. From where I sit, part of Anne's life work has been to try to bring clarity to this specific confusion. Her article produced 
concrete outcomes for real women. William Prusel was fired as concertmaster of the Cleveland Orchestra, conductor Daniele Gatti was fired from the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra, and Bernard Uzan resigned from the Florida Grand Opera. And after that article came out, more reports emerged reinforcing these and other major incidents. The Hall of Mirrors continues today with Robert Beezer at Juilliard and the over 500 men and women who have stepped forward about his case. Anne's humility about her work, however, speaks to the difficulty of creating a lasting impact during Me Too. For instance, months after Anne's article got Daniele Gatti fired, he denied the allegations and then got hired again in the same year. It's really easy to see how you might get discouraged. Anne left the post in 2019, in part because she was carrying around so much baggage, so many unwritten stories. It's exhausting. But I think we can agree that big changes are afoot. And in Anne's case, there is just no question that the reporting she has done laid the groundwork for what we're seeing today. If you're curious about what Anne is up to now, she's currently working on a book on Nanette Stryker, the woman who built pianos for Beethoven. That's a music of their own from Cap Radio. Thank you for joining us. A music of their own is a Cap Radio production. Interviews were engineered and produced by me, Majel Connery, and edited by Kevin Doherty. Paul Conley mastered the mix. Sally Schilling is our executive producer with production assistance from Jen Picard. Chris Bruno is in charge of marketing. Our designs were created by Marissa Espiritu. Renee Thompson is our digital projects manager. The theme song for a music of their own is called We Need a Room, and it and all the music for this episode was created by my band, Sky Creature. You can find us on Spotify or Apple Music. Don't forget to follow a music of their own wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating and a review so others can find this podcast too. To find out more about the guests on our podcast, Go to the show notes or visit capradio.org forward slash a music of their own. We've posted Anne's Me Too article there, plus a few more. Thank you for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.